Lincolnshire LMC, supporting Lincolnshire's general practices to provide great care. Hello everybody and welcome back to um, another episode of Lincolnshire LMC's Hot Topics. Today we are joined by Dr Shakira, a rheumatologist from um, United Lincolnshire Hospitals Trust. It is absolutely fantastic to have you here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm pleased to, to be here. Yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Batsi Chikora. I think probably you've all seen my clinic letters. Um, I'm a consultant rheumatologist, but I am also the uh, clinical lead for rheumatology, dermatology, and neurology, and I'm the strategic lead for rheumatology. Fantastic. And you've been doing lots and lots of work on some new pathways. There's a huge amount of transformation going on at the moment. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me. Um, yeah, the, the main aim really is to improve the patient's journey. I think what I really, really like about these pathways is that, like, as you mentioned, they have been designed, the, the referral forms have been designed with GPs so they're for GPs designed with GPs and the point of them is to be simple easy to use um, and altogether the aim is to um, improve the patient's journey get the right patient seen at the right time by the right person Um, and I having kind of gone through them a number of times now I think that they are really quite straightforward and I I think I've certainly learned quite a lot from going through them and that's why it was really uh, exciting to be able to do a podcast with you today and go through each of the the referral forms. Uh, The use of these uh, referral uh, pathways, I think they're going to improve the quality of the referrals. I think there's always, um, uh, uh, you know, the uh, consultants, they uh, have been struggling with uh, inappropriate referrals and some of the, you know, referrals generate more work and that you've got to ask for more information and then it's sent back to you again. So there's quite a lot of um, um, uh, enthusiasm about using this and that we hope uh, that this is going to be a win-win situation for both uh, the secondary care and primary care. So today uh, we are going to be going through uh, a number of the different pathways that have come through from the um, work that's been done in rheumatology. So um, we're going to talk about ankylosing spondylitis in early inflammatory arthritis. Uh, giant cell arthritis, as well as polymyalgia rheumatica, um, and then gout. Um, spend a little bit of time talking about gout, and then con- um, connective tissue diseases like Sjogren's, systemic sclerosis. Um, and then we're also going to be talking a little bit about what to do with patients that are out of area, um, and and how to sort of streamline the care for them. Um, so really looking forward to it. And um, the first thing we're going to talk about is is ankylosing spondylitis. We see a lot of patients with back pain, and this is one of those diagnoses that um, is always kind of at the back of the mind. I'm not wanting to miss particularly younger patients. So I wondered if Dr. Jakira, if you could just start us off by talking a little bit about that. Uh, back pain is very very common in the general population, probably about 20% of the population, and ankylosing spondylitis is where less than 0.1% of the population. And we also know one of the uh, tests that is routinely requested, which is the HLA-B27. Um, uh, it's it's about you know 8% of the population. So we do have lots of people with this gene, with the back pain, but they don't have ankylosing spondylitis. So the purpose of this form really is to say, 
what really defines ankylosing spondylitis? What are those things that could make you think that this patient has ankylosing spondylitis? So if you do think that this patient has ankylosing spondylitis, then there is a pathway for it. Ankylosing spondylitis is rare, or first onset of ankylosing spondylitis is rare after the age of 45. So um, we need to be targeting the younger population, but some people may be diagnosed later when they're in their 50s because they've had chronic back pain since they're probably in their, in their 20s and 30s. And we need those patients to have persistent uh, back pain, which is more than three months. We have incorporated this SPED tool. It's not that you have to, to do it, but this SPED tool really would give you some indicators what are the things that are really important in terms of diagnosing ankylosing spondylitis? So it is just a tick box where, you know, you'd ask the patient, you know, uh, family history, you know, the blood tests and the type of back pain that they have. Um, and then once you take that, it sort of gives you a score and that score determines whether this is definitely going to be ankylosing spondylitis or, or most likely ankylosing spondylitis, or is it unlikely to be ankylosing spondylitis? And that's where you start to look at other diagnoses. So in terms of the things that we look for, ankylosing spondylitis, again, is inflammatory type back pain. And that's what this form really is asking for, that you have back pain that is worse at night, the back pain that wakes you up at night, the back pain that is uh, causes stiffness in the morning, and then back pain that improves with activities. Buttock pain, very, very important because buttock pain signifies sacroiliitis. So we need to be asking about that. And a lot of patients with ankylosing spondylitis do benefit from NSAIDs. So if we prescribe ibuprofen or diclofenac, then we expect them to be improving. Family history, because there's a genetic uh, or a gene that is associated with ankylosing spondylitis, then the family history is very, very important. So the other things that are important as well is if you do have inflammatory arthritis, for example, psoriatic arthritis, if you have a history of uveitis, which is associated with the spondylarthropathies, um, and inflammatory bowel disease, or enthesitis. Enthesitis, this is where you get inflammation where the tendons insert into the bone, and that can be seen by sometimes tenderness around the elbows, or you can get uh, inflammation around uh, the Achilles tendon. So when you do imaging, we want to see uh, whether there has been um, damage to the uh, SI joints, or whether there's any, any suggestions of sacroiliitis. So, uh, all these symptoms are very, very important in terms of defining what spondylarthropathy or ankylosing spondylitis is all about. So the more you tick, the more likely um, that uh, you will get the diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the table below, um, that mm -hmm. you, you get the tests that you need to be done, these are all basic. We need to x-ray the lumbar spine and SI joints. We may need to check HLA-B27 and inflammatory markers. And then the next section will be where you may have free text, should you do wish, to write about the patient's symptoms and all the history. 
and the other uh, parts can be auto-populated about medications, allergies, and so forth. This can come from, from your systems. Fantastic. What I really like about this is it's just quite systematic, isn't it? It just works through what you'd be thinking about um, and it is quite straightforward. So fantastic. Thank you. Um, and I suppose it's probably worth just mentioning at this point about advice and guidance. Would it be fair to say that, you know, that's a service that we'd be happy for people to message um, you, send advice and guidances in if there's any sort of concerns about whether or not something should be referred or not? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, incorporated in these uh, pathways or something that we actually needed or wanted to promote is the use of advice and guidance. We think at the moment is sort of underutilized. So we'll be uh, very happy to um, take any uh, questions um, through the advice and guidance. We can sort of advise whether this patient needs to, ref to be referred to the AS pathway or some other investigation needs to be done or there's another diagnosis. Perfect. Should we talk about the early inflammatory arthritis pathway now? Um, Absolutely. So this one again designed to be very, very easy to complete. Doesn't take time at all. It's just a tick box. But here we're sort of trying to define what is really inflammatory arthritis. Okay. But we have incorporated other things that, you know, the suspicion of, but, you know, it's the patient does not have joint swelling per se, because uh, inflammatory arthritis is all about swelling in the joints. When you talk about rheumatoid arthritis is swelling in the small joints, we're talking about hands or wrists and feet. But of course, we do have other types of inflammatory arthritis, such as psoriatic arthritis that may have a different pattern. So we want joints to be swollen. If not swollen, then there may be painful joints in the context of other autoimmune problems. For example, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel disease. We do get uh, lots of referrals and say, do they have an inflammatory arthritis as well? So we are happy to see those patients. If they do have painful joints, there's no obvious inflammation, but they do have raised inflammatory markers. So again, although they don't look very swollen, is there an inflammatory arthritis and we want to see those patients. And some patients may have painful joints with the uh, uh, rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP antibodies being positive. So those patients again may benefit from being reviewed in the rheumatology clinic just to make sure that they don't have an inflammatory arthritis. So that's in terms of the history. And then the, below that is just tick boxes which joints are involved. So the pattern of joint involvement very, very important again, may tell us what the diagnosis may be. So that's just a tick box. And then um, basic requests, we need these basic requests because if we do have um, the x-rays being done already, uh, the blood tests showing uh, whether they, there's inflammation or not, whether the rheumatoid factor positive or anticipate antibody positive, then that again will sort of increased, increase our, our um, diagnosis uh, when we first see the patient. So this is very, very simple. I think in terms of X-ray in the joints, um, would advise probably not to X-ray everything. So if you think it's rheumatoid arthritis, hands, wrists, and feet, that's enough. But if there are just a few affected joints, let's say three joints affected, then X-ray those. But 
try to avoid x-raying everything. Um, I think we've already had a bit of concerns from the radiology department that there's been a request of too many. Yeah, I was going to say radiology probably wouldn't be very happy with they with like multiple um, requests for different joints and things. We're sort of aware of that. So um, that's a good point to mention. Um, and then obviously, as you mentioned, there's that free text area afterwards that if there's any other information that would be pertinent to the referral, there's an area to document that as well. Absolutely. So again, you know, you can do free text, you know, uh, forget about the, the tick boxes. You can do your own free text if you want to add something. And then again, past medical history, medications, all these will auto populate. If there is maybe a little bit of uncertainty about exactly what you might be dealing with, I think you've said previously quite like people to refer us to sort of make the best estimate about what they think might be going on as we would normally and then refer on that appropriate pathway. Absolutely. So this is uh, the beauty of these uh, referral pathways in that there is a lot of flexibility. Or what we're asking is that just think about what it could be and then choose the right referral pathway. Should we talk about giant cell arteritis now? Because that's um that's a, a really good, it's a really detailed pathway, actually. Um, it's not detailed in that it's not too long, it's not got too much information there, but it, it offers quite a lot of guidance, doesn't it, about sort of, um, um, you know, what to do with different types of patients and what to think about during, for example, examination and things like that. Um, do you want to just maybe talk us through this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so gentle arthritis, I think we really, really need to uh, implement this pathway as soon as possible uh, because this is a condition that's associated with morbidity and mortality. So uh, in this uh, form, it's very, very simple. Again, that age is very, very important. That is unlikely that it would gentle arthritis if you are less than age of, six, of 50. So you need to be 50 years or older with new onset of a headache. So the other things that we would want to ask about, which improves the diagnosis, of course, scalp tenderness, thickening of the temperatures. Do you have and pain and stiffness that will suggest polymyalgia rheumatica? Do you have um, systemic uh, symptoms, you know, fever, weight loss? Um, do you have jaw claudication or tongue claudication or limb claudication that may um, uh, indicate that there is some uh, blood vessels occlusion? And do you have neuropathic symptoms where you got nerve type pain? Do you have scalp ne necrosis? Um, do you have new visual disturbance? Do you have raised inflammatory markers? So the more you tick of these, then that increases um uh, the the chance of uh diagnosing uh, or increase the probability of diagnosing uh genital arthritis so this is a yes and no if it's no to everything then that becomes a, unlikely that this is the diagnosis so once you 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 uh, make the diagnosis that this is a probable genital arthritis then you have to start on steroids so once you start on steroids and um, then you refer to rheumatology, but you may also want to refer the patient to the ophthalmology department if they do have visual symptoms. 
So this form again gives you very, very good guidance of what steroid dose you're going to start the patient on. So if someone has visual symptoms, then you, you will want to start on 60 milligrams. But if you do have a patient as well who do have those uh, symptoms that suggest that there's or, uh, occlusion of blood vessels, um, like jaw claudication, tongue claudication, or neuropathy, or these severe symptoms, then again, start on 60 milligrams. For other patients who just have a headache and raise inflammatory markers and other things and scalp tenderness, then that is 40 milligrams. There are the phone numbers for um, referring to rheumatology and referring to ophthalmology as well. There are email um, uh, addresses there that you can actually use to refer to rheumatology. So every day we'll check the, the referrals to make sure that we pick them up straight away. Patients will need to be seen within 48 hours from rheumatology. I've got um, just two questions on this pathway. The, the first sure. one is about biopsies. So previously um, there's been um, kind of conversations about contacting vascular and things like that. That's not obviously not, not on here. Is, is there any reason to have to contact anybody else about anything or is it just doing these referrals? Yep. If we do uh, use these referrals appropriately, you don't have to do that. This is now the beauty of them. That is going to take less work for uh, the GPs to deal with the patient's arthritis. But if yeah. you use other referral pathways and everything else, then you may have to arrange for that because once you start steroids, you know, we need that biopsy to be done within two weeks. That's fantastic news and it is, you know, much easier and saves a lot of time for, for clinicians, certainly. Um, I suppose I'm thinking about the, you know, the, the circumstances when it's a patient on a, late on a Friday afternoon and they come in and you're concerned about the um, symptoms that they've got. You think it could be giant arthritis or temporal arthritis. And um, obviously you've mentioned that they should be seen within 40 hours. Would you say that, you know, sending this off obviously on a Friday potentially might mean that there could be a delay with the form getting to the right person and being triaged. Is, the, is, is this still the best way to go or is, there a, is it worth ringing ahead or something like that? As long as you use the right pathway, you don't have to ring. If you use the, the email, the email is checked every day. Okay. So, as long as you use the right pathway, that's why we're saying these pathways are very, very important because if you do use the right pathway, it means that patients are picked up in a timely manner. Yeah. We have made provisions in the rheumatology clinics for these patients. So we do have a slot in my clinic every week waiting for a referral for the giant cell arthritis. So I suppose yeah, the key message here is, you know, the, the, all the contact details are on there. You've given phone numbers and email addresses. You've given the dose of steroids um, and exactly which situations it's required for and which dose. So should make it quite simple and easy to get these patients seen. Yeah. Again, uh, uh, the polymerase referral pathway is, in actual fact, very, very simple again. Um, I know there's quite a lot of expertise in managing uh, polymerase aromatica. Uh, in primary care. So most patients with polymerase aromatica, we don't need to see them. Um, they are all um, 
uh, lots of uh, uh, information about, uh, you know, steroids, um, what starting dose, how you taper the steroids. All this information is widely available. But there are certain uh, patients with polymerase aromatica who may need uh, to be uh, reviewed or managed in secondary care. So this is what the, this form is all about. Which are those patients that GPs may be uncomfortable about? And they may say, you know, you need to see this patient. So um, one of the things, of course, is the age of onset of uh, polymerase aromatica, which is the age about 50. What if we were a 45-year-old with a typical onset uh, of polymerase aromatica, is this really polymerase aromatica? If patients have chronic symptoms or chronic onset, usually polymerase is quite dramatic. Usually, you know, people wake up, you know, uh, in the morning and they can't they can move, or within just a week or two, uh, the symptoms uh, really have developed. So if there is a bit of slowly progressive symptoms, is there something else happening there? So would want to see these patients. Of course, polymyalgia aromatica is a lot about the shoulder and hip ghetto pain. If there's not much of shoulder, hip ghetto pain, then what else could be happening? So we're happy to see these patients. Patients with severe symptoms, and we think, mm, is there something else happening here? For example, people who are losing weight, then they just have general deterioration in health. Um, is there something else going on there? Uh, then we'd want to uh, to see them. Also, if there's joint swelling and other things on top of uh, the polymyalgia rheumatica, is this polymyalgic onset of rheumatoid arthritis, for example? So these patients, we would want to see them. Again, we have patients with good onset uh, of uh, polymyalgia rheumatica, where patients do have the typical onset but they do have normal inflammatory markers. I've seen a, a couple of patients like that, and they still do have polymyalgia aromatica. So low ESR or low CRP um, should not, uh, you know, take you off that particular diagnosis because we do have patients with a good going rheumatoid arthritis, and they don't have raised inflammatory markers. And those patients with extremely high inflammatory markers again what else could be going on there. So we would want to see these patients. But for the majority of the patients, I think the diagnosis is straightforward and they can be managed in primary care. In terms of management, I've seen a few ca uh, cases where there's a bit of a management dilemma. And one of them is poor response to steroids. So one of the indicators of polymerase aromatica is this dramatic response to steroids. So we expect within three days they're feeling better and within a week, patients are feeling back to their self. So if there is not that dramatic response, you know, they may say, yeah, I'm 50% better, but we want them to be 90% better or more. If there are problems in reducing steroids, which I've seen a few cases again, we want to see those patients. Do they need steroid sparing agents, such as methotrexate, which I prescribed to a few patients. Any dose above 10 milligrams of prednisolone, is not acceptable in the long term. 10 megahertz and above, maybe we may uh, try to keep them on that dose. Some patients say steroids, no, no, no. I'm, I'm getting hallucinations. I'm getting all sorts of things with the steroids. I don't want them. Um, so we could also see those patients. And some patients say, I don't want steroids at all. Uh, they've not tried them again. 
we may want to see them. They may want to try other disease modifying drugs. If there is a problem in winning off steroids, um, you know, after two years, we expect people to be off steroids, but then sometimes it takes longer. Um, if there's problems like that, then we may want to see them and sort of decide, is this, uh, was this the diagnosis? Is everything okay? What's the steroid dose? And then is it safe to maintain them on these uh, steroids in the long term? And then the, the table below, of course, is the usual things where we would check inflammatory markers, you know, with X and pains and stiffness, of course, you want to check your vitamin D, make sure that they're not vitamin D deficient and also check their bone profile. Um, you may want to check the CK again, because with the X and pain stiffness, sometimes people say I'm weak as well. Uh, you may want to check, see whether there is not an inflammatory myopathy. Myeloma screen, we're talking about these patients who are unwell, they are systemically unwell. Is there something else happening? Um, so that's where we do uh, the myeloma screen. I know, of course, steroid function tests are routinely done, so we don't have, I don't have to mention them at all. Um, and then the table below, of course, will be the usual thing, which is the, you know, you can do free text where you can write um, whatever you want us to be aware of, and the past medical history, medications, allergies, who autopopulate. So I think it's going to be doing the blood tests that is going to give us more information when you see the patient and make decisions based on those yeah. results as well. So just kind of just just the appropriate blood tests. And I guess they're Absolutely. always right in the free text area if there's a reason that a particular test hasn't been done or something. Um, yes. Okie dokie. Thank you. So um, do you want to talk us through the, the gout referral pathway then? All right, so most of the patients with gout don't really need secondary care. I think uh, GPs are quite competent in diagnosing and of gout, but there's always those areas which would need to be seen in secondary care. So again, which patients would benefit from review in secondary care? So it could be because there's a diagnostic dilemma or there's a management dilemma. So we've seen referrals coming in both categories. So we would worry about those patients, of course, who may have inherited conditions and they get gout really early on in life. Um, so anyone getting gout below the age of 30, we may want to see them. Do they have something else that may be causing their gout? But also there's always that diagnostic dilemma. Is this really gout or is there something else happening? Of course, if there's a typical onset of gout involving the big toe, involving the ankles and the foot, yeah, that's usually is very, very simple and straightforward. Uh, but if you suspect that there's something else going, then um, you may want to uh, refer to rheumatology. In terms of the management now, we've got uh, you know patients who may have severe forms of gout, for example, uh, widespread tophaceous gout, um, then you may want to refer to us. Those uh, patients may have um, uh, uh, renal calculi or people who may have uh, urate uh, nephropathy or difficult to manage uh, patients, then we'll be able to see them again. If you feel that there's someone who may need benefit from a steroid injection, then 
you may, uh, but you can't do the steroid injection yourself, then you may want patients. And then those who have persistent joint swelling despite NSAIDs. And we do have patients who uh, may have swelling for more than four weeks. We expect in acute attack of gout to be over within 10 to 14 days. But if that doesn't happen, then is there something else happening? And we want to see them. In terms of treatment, again, are they intolerant to allopurinol for books of that? Um, uh, for whatever reason, then we may uh, wish to see uh, these patients. And if you fail to reach the, the target level, then the target level is less than 300 micromoles per liter. We don't use the minus um, less than 300 micromoles per liter, then you're likely to get an acute attack of gout. But you would also make sure that you're giving the maximum doses, of course, looking at the renal function as well. So allopurinol, the maximum dose is uh, 900 milligrams in divided doses. The books of start is 120 milligrams daily. So uh, those patients, again, who are flaring up despite the maximum therapy, who would want to see them? Uh, but most of the patients with the gout can be managed care. If you do wish to refer, then you do the uh, usual uh, blood tests again, kidney function tests, very, very important, and the other blood counts as well. Uh, urate levels, again, we want to see what the urate levels have been in the past. And then below uh, will be the free text again. You can write whatever you want to write or include. That will be helpful. And then the other things will auto-populate the past medical history, the medications and the allergies. Fantastic. And I suppose a good point to mention again here about advice and guidance. So you've described like quite a few different um, management dilemmas and common things that GPs will may be grappling with with the gout patients. And, and there is also the option of, of just firing off an advice and guidance request, isn't there, for getting some quick advice. But obviously, as it says here, there's quite clear, clearly defined criteria for which patients you'd be happy to see in clinic. Absolutely. I think uh, this form, um, I think we need uh, to emphasize again about the use of advice and guidance because the question may be very, very simple, straightforward question. What else can I use? And then we'll be able to provide that information via advice and guidance very, very easily. Yeah. Great. Should we do the, um, the connective tissue disease um, pathway now because we're sort of coming to the end of the um the path um i mean the connective tissue diseases I, I have to confess i don't know a huge amount about them because i don't see that many patients with these conditions and this is probably the, the sort of sjogren's and systemic sclerosis patients i would probably be much i have a much lower threshold for advice and guidance with these but but i'm I, that's just me personally but but i'm also really relieved that this pathway is so detailed and that there's so many different symptoms and things that are listed on here that are a really good um, kind of sort of help helper for the mind just when you're seeing a patient if it if it, those sorts of diagnoses do pop into your mind it's that this is a really good place to sort of start with and you can kind of talk through the different types of symptoms with the patients. This form for connective tissue diseases um, 
is really there to kind of give you a flavor of what are the things that may make you suspect that this patient has a connective tissue disorder. Of course, there is a wide varieties of, um, uh, of forms of uh, connective tissue disorders, um, ranging from lupus, you know, to systemic vascularities. Um, it's sometimes difficult to make the diagnosis in primary care, but there are certain things or indicators that may make you suspect that this patient has got a connective tissue disorder. And one of them is, of course, someone with systemic problems or uh, systemic and unwell, and then they've got, you know, the autoantibodies, ANA or ANCAs, uh, they're positive. The interpretation of ANCAs, of course, is uh, not so straightforward like the ANA. So the ANA is either positive or negative, but also we also actually look at how positive or how negative it is depending on the titers. And then the ANCA sometimes are reported as positive, but then when you do the further test, which is the MPO and PR3, and then they are negative. So if the MPO and PR3 are negative, then that anchor is usually um, of no clinical significance. So being unwell, positive autoantibodies, is there something going on? Um, then referring this pathway will be probably the best thing here. So uh, again, people who are not feeling well, have fevers of unknown origin, um, and people are losing weight, may have skin rashes, photos in the TVT, losing their hair, and a bit of skin changes, puffiness in the hair, uh, in, the, in, the, in the hands, and new onset of um, rain nodes. So uh, primary rain nodes, usually they sort of uh, onset below the age of 30. If someone has got first onset of rain nodes after the age of 30, then we suspect maybe there's something going on there. Again, XM pains or inflammation in the joints, in association with other symptoms, then we want these patients as well. If they have muscle pain, muscle weakness, they've had uh, pericarditis symptoms or pleurisy, and um, unexplained deterioration in renal function with positive autoantibodies, we want to. Unexplained cough and shortness of breath in the, in the presence, again, of those autoantibodies, then is there a connective tissue disorder. So I think it's a combination of the general symptoms and the positive autoantibodies. And the other thing that you may find on the blood test is raised inflammatory markers. And sometimes you may find that the patients are anemic, they've got low lymphocyte count, they've got a low neutrophil count or low platelet count. Sometimes these, in actual fact, would indicate that there's something happening. If the patient is uh, unexplained raised CK, then again, is this a myositis or not? Then that warrants a referral. Um, low complement C3, C4, that indicates complement uh, consumption, and this we usually see in patients with lupus. Unexplained proteinuria again and hematuria in the presence of uh, an ANA which is positive, again, is there something going on there? So other conditions that we may want to be aware of again, things like, you know, Sjogren's where you get dry eyes, dry mouth, and then um, you get uh, some patients who may have 
unexplained recurrent miscarriages. Usually these patients are picked up uh, in a gynecology clinic um, and subsequently some of them may be referred to rheumatology. So this is really, you know, a combination of uh, the symptoms that would make us suspect that this patient has a connective tissue disorder and then the blood tests that can add value that when the patients are referred to rheumatology, then we're able to tease out what is what. So the test that we have recommended again is the usual one, which is autoimmune screen, ANA, anchors, C3, C4. Again, make sure that the patient has the blood uh, pressure checked, urine analysis, chest x-ray if they have chest symptoms. So the usual, again, the inflammatory markers, they all need to be checked. That. So this uh, below is now where should the patient go? But if the patient has many renal problems with positive, uh, positive autoantibodies, then referring to renal clinic will probably be the most appropriate. If someone has got many skin rash, a bit of eczema pain in the joints, or, and then the skin rash is the most dominant problem there, and then they need to be referred to dermatology. If you are not so sure what the significance of the blood tests are, then advising guidance will be the best. Yeah. So those patients without, you know, uh, renal involvement, you know, without just dermatological involvement, then these patients will be referred to rheumatology. And then the uh, below uh, will be again your free text, whatever you want us to uh, to tell us or make us aware of. And then uh, past medical history, medications, and all allergies, they're all autopopulate. Brilliant. And there was a, a couple of other blood tests that you mentioned earlier um, that I actually have never heard of. MPO and those those specific, quite specific ones. Um, yep. They, those obviously aren't listed on the form there, so there'd be no expectation that GPs would be doing any of those particular tests? They come automatically with the anchor. Oh, okay, okay. Yep, so when they, when they do the anchor, the first test is a screening test. Is it positive mm -hmm. or negative? And then the next one, is there any specific anchor? Right. So non-specific anchor, that is when the PR3 and MPO are normal or negative. Yeah, okay. Then it means this is unspecific anchor and usually it's of no clinical significance. Okay, I see. Okay, okay. Um, and I like that this has got that kind of um, more specific direction in. It's, you know, there's quite a few different options, rheumatology, nephrology, dermatology, and the use of advice and guidance, just kind of signifying that these are, you know, patients that have got multi, you know, multi, multi, multiple different systems affected and you want to be referring to the most appropriate rather than just referring to rheumatology because it happens to be a rheumatology pathway. Um, it may be more appropriate to send them to see the um, nephrologists or the dermatologists. So that's really helpful. Absolutely. I think getting the patient to the right pathway from the beginning, that's going to improve the prognosis. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I think going through those pathways has been 
really really helpful it's good to just talk them through and and hopefully it makes a lot of sense to those that are listening if you want to have a look at the pathways for yourself as i mentioned they are on system one um and you know there may be lots of questions that are kind of crop up from this and we're happy to uh, accept those questions following the podcast but there is another question that i did want to ask you um dr shakira and that's around out of area patients patients that are from a different region um who are having the care transferred and i wonder if you could just kind of iron out what what's in place and what's the right thing to do for those sorts of patients yes uh, we do have another referral pathways for those patients who are coming out of region and the reason why we have developed this pathway is because uh, some patients are on biologic, some patients are on methotrexate. And the methotrexate, yes, can be prescribed in primary care, but that is when there is a shared care. So the shared care with the be elsewhere and not uh, the local GP. So it is a problem. It becomes a bit of a gray area. So if we develop a pathway, it means that these patients are sort of signposted to the right service. You can pick them up quite quickly and then be able to see them much sooner. Because we tend to say patients who are already on treatment and we don't prioritize those patients who have no diagnosis, annual referrals, are not on treatment. So they tend to get the priority. But then there is this group of patients who are on treatment are stable, but there is no arrangement locally. So some patients may end up not having medications. So if we do have this pathway, then it means that we're able to see them and have a shared care uh, locally arranged. And was there anything else that you wanted to let the primary care community practice managers or um, even trainee GPs in the area, anything else that you wanted to just kind of tell tell us? And- well, the key message is very simple. Use these referral pathways. <laughs> they work. They're simple. They're educative, interactive. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Oh, 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 oh,